Well, let's, uh, before we read uh, 1 Samuel chapter 5, let's open in a word of prayer and then we'll get started. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for its um, power in our lives uh, to show us what we need to change and show us how to change. And Lord, we thank you that you've given us all a personal copy of your, your authoritative word. And we just thank you tonight that we can gather together as the body of Christ and go through First Samuel chapter 5 as we're going through this uh, Old Testament book. Lord, we pray tonight as we see your power, we see your sovereignty in the lives of those uh, that we're going to speak about. Lord, we also are reminded of how you have um, shown us your power and your sovereignty in our own lives. And Lord, we just pray tonight that you would help us to set these moments aside as, as just a, a time that we can focus on you and your word. And, and Lord, that we would uh, be blessed by our being here tonight. And Father, we pray for those who aren't here. Pray for my wife who's got a sore throat tonight and, and uh, not feeling well. And others, Lord, um, who are not doing well. We just pray, uh, think of Christian and her family and, and the Hills, Lord, who are dealing with this flu or virus, whatever's going around. We just pray that you'd bless them and remind them of your grace in their lives. And we thank you uh, for each one of us here tonight and pray that you'd bless us for being here in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. First Samuel chapter 5. First Samuel chapter 5. Just 12 verses, but there's a lot here for us to go through. So let's, I'll read through the, the text. You can follow along in your Bibles and then we'll um, do a little review from last week and then start our lesson together. First Samuel chapter 5. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and they put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon, and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy upon the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the God of Israel, must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. <laughs> so they brought the ark of God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark 
of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out. They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there, and the men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Incredible segment of scripture as we read through this remember last week uh, we looked at chapter uh, four and we talked about how we can lose god in religion and we made three brief points we said you can lose god by emphasizing ritual over religion over relationship that was the first thing we saw in verses one through five and we saw where they depended on human wisdom rather than God's word. They tried to manipulate God for their own purpose. They focused on religious objects rather than God. And they expected God's blessing without any repentance, which is never a good formula. The second thing we saw was not only can you lose God by emphasizing ritual over relationship, but we said that you can lose God by following a false religion. There's a lot of false religions in the world today. A lot of them. And in verses 6 to 9, we said that they, they were not willing to recognize the one true God. We know that through Jesus. Um, and they were holding on to misinformation. And they, they believed that you can fight against God and win, the Philistines. And then the last thing we looked at last week, was there's, or two weeks ago, there was nothing worse than losing God. And we saw at the end of that chapter, chapter 4, where it basically says in verse uh, 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 21, the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured by the enemies and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. So you can see their faith was in this box called the ark of God that represented the presence of God um, in their time. It was just a two-by-four box laden with gold, covered with blood, because that's where they did all the sacrifices, and contained some elements that, that reminded them of the faithfulness of God to them. But they thought that somehow God resided in this box. And that was their mistake. Well, tonight we want to look at chapter 5, and it talks about not messing around with the power of God. <laughs> we, we don't realize sometimes how powerful God is. And, and that's really... Um, what this chapter talks about. Uh, it, it talks about the sovereignty of God. It talks about the power of God. And you remember, there's this giant battle between the Philistines and Israel. Uh, first of all, in the place called Aphek. All right? And all the, all the cities in, in Philistia were, were kind of equivalent to modern Gaza, you might say, as far as landmass to the west and the coastline from about Jerusalem downward to the coastline. And at at the the Battle of Aphek, they lost 4,000 Israeli soldiers. They were killed. And um, they got the bright idea of saying, hey, well, the reason they they killed us is because we don't have the ark. We got to get the ark. Hophni, go get the ark. 
And so they brought the ark, and they thought, we'll take the ark with us into battle, and, and therefore we'll have to win because we have this thing with us. And what happened was, in a place called Ebenezer, bringing the ark with them, they lost 30,000 men <laughs> to the Philistines in one battle. And so you had Hophni and Phinehas, who the sons of Eli, who was the high priest, and he was kind of retired, but his sons weren't really doing right, so he kind of felt a need to still be involved in this. It wasn't really supposed to be, because you only had 25 years where you could really hold on to the office of high priest, but um, his sons were so wicked, um, they ended up being killed by God. They were killed in this battle, according to the word of the Lord, a, a prophecy that we went over in the earlier chapters. Because they were so wicked. They were taking advantage of the people. They were taking advantage of the offerings that the people brought. Um, they didn't honor God. They had prostitution going on um, in, the, in the place where they would worship God and offer these sacrifices. And when they came in, they reported to Eli that both of his sons died in battle. What happened to him? He fell backward. Remember, they were all kind of portly. They were all pretty big. He fell backward and broke his neck and died. Just like the prophecy said. And then... Uh, uh, Phinehas' wife, who was also pregnant on hearing the news of the death of her husband and her father-in-law, began labor pains. And before uh, she, she died, she gave birth to a son. So you can see the tragedy of this family and what's going on. And they're, they're, they're ministering before the Lord in a, in a way that wasn't honoring to him. And she names her son Ichabod. <laughs> which means the glory has departed. Now, they have this idea in verse 1 of chapter 5, the Philistines capture the ark, all right? And so they take the ark to this place called Ashdod. It's taken to the place of their, their god. And you, you have to go back in their culture, and you have to understand that the Philistines were... Uh, polytheistic, they're pantheistic, they, they, they worshipped everything and anything. And one of their gods was a Dagon. Dagon, Dagon, you know. And, and he was just a, it, it basically has the idea that the word actually means corn, day in the Hebrew. So it, it kind of may mean the god of corn or the god of uh, farming, you know, that kind of thing, agricultural thing. They looked to him for that. And he was probably one of the most powerful gods that they have. Now, you know, when you stop and you think of the power of God from a human perspective, we've probably all at some point in our Christian walk, or even as non-Christians, have played a game with God concerning his power. Maybe you've heard about some of the things that God has done, Maybe you've heard about some of the things that he promised to do, some of the principles in his words, and yet we still respond defiantly <laughs> to his word, to his promises. And we kind of look at it and go, well, you know, we, we know that's true, but we don't want this to disrupt our life. And, and for the moment, we doubt, or for the moment, we doubt the power of God, and we really put our emphasis on our own human strength, our own ingenuity. And we say, you know, do we really need the power of God? Do we really need to go by his precepts? And, you know, sometimes when you're surrounded by people playing that game every day, you can just kind of join in with the crowd. It's just very common. And the power of God causes very few people in our society today to fear or to tremble, which it should do, but it doesn't. 
But we all, we all do it at times. And so it looks like sometimes, and we have to admit this, to be honest with you, the people that defy the power of God, sometimes from a human perspective, just in our own logic, we look at their lives and we go, they're winning. They shouldn't be winning. They're defying God to his face, and yet look at them. They have nice houses. They have nice cars. They have nice jobs. They have a wonderful family. Being blessed financially. What's wrong with this picture? And sometimes we think that people who defy God's power, somehow we begin to believe, well, maybe you can get away with it. Maybe, maybe just by chance you can get away with it. And we even saw this in chapter 4. Okay, and this is what it looked like with the Philistines last week or two weeks ago when they faced the power of God. What was their words? Do you remember what the words were in verse 9? They, they were bringing the ark and they thought it said, boy, they learned that the ark of the Lord came to the camp. And it says the Philistines were afraid because they thought this represented their God. And somehow in their war mentality, they thought this was definite victory for Israel. And then all the way down in verse 9, here's what they tell each other. They say, hey, take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. Kind of pretty courageous words in, in, in what would seem would be a definite loss in their mind. They thought for sure they were going to lose this because why? Israel had the ark. <laughs> they had this box thing that they worshiped, and, and it's kind of like our God, Dagon, but you know what? It, it, it may give them an advantage. And you know what happened? They won. The Philistines won. They defied the power of God, and they won. They defeated the Israelites. They captured the ark as a trophy. And, and sometimes those around us who defy God and really rely on their human strength or human wisdom seem to get away with it. They seem like, oh, it's just going to, you know, just like the Philistines. They seem to win more than their share of life's battles. And when you stop and you, you think about that, that sometimes encourages us to question the power of God. All right? But defying God is not something that looks particularly stupid in this thing. It says, hey, they did it and they won. And, you know, if you ask somebody on the street, would you ever defy the power of God? Would you ever defy? People probably say, yeah, do it all the time. Okay, they, they don't have a, a healthy reverence for God. Even ourselves, we don't find ourselves trembling when we think of the power of God. And so when we look at these, the, this situation that develops out of, of chapter 4, two things you can, you can see. The Israelites were... First of all, presuming on the power of God, weren't they? When they went into the battle, they thought, hey, we got the ark, God's power, we're going to wipe these guys out. They presumed, irrespective of what they were doing at the temple and all this, all this wrong living that was going on, it was really debauchery before a holy God, they just said, hey, we got the ark, we're good, we got it. So they were presuming on the power of God, while the Philistines, what were they doing? They were defying the power of God. And you see that parallel. And so the Israelites presumed, presumption turned into this desperation, really, as they, they suffered this incredible crushing defeat at the hand of their enemies and left them scratching their heads and mourning their dead. 
And what is to be said about the, the Philistines' defiance? You know, the feature of the story that inevitably strikes any reader today as strange is the role played by this gold-plated box known as, to Israel, the Ark of the Covenant. And now when you stop and you, you think of this, this box and the control it assumably had over people, the Philistines thought they were going to be defeated because of it. The Israelites thought, what? They were going to win, hands down. And so the elders of Israel thought that bringing somehow this Ark of the Covenant down from Shiloh to their camp at Ebenezer would result in God saving them from the Philistines. But guess what? It didn't do it. And the Philistines thought that the Ark's presence in the Israel camp posed a terrible threat to them. But guess what? It didn't. It didn't do it. And when the Philistines crushed, the, crushed Israel, killing many of them, they killed also the two priests who carried the ark, and then they took the ark itself. It would be similar to losing a, a game in a sports vernacular on your home team, on your home turf, just horribly. I mean, before your home crowd, just totally getting your, 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 your rear end kicked. All right, that's kind of what it was. And so we see from these previous chapters that we looked at, this wasn't without cause that these two guys died, Hophni and Phinehas. They were wicked. Um, and they were really at the heart of this problem, these two wannabe priests. They were wicked men. They utterly failed God's God-given duty to be priests for the people of Israel. They just, they didn't take it seriously. They showed contempt for the sacrifices, for the offerings that the people brought. And this terrible defeat of the Israelites suffered at the hands of the Philistines really was, what, God's judgment. Had nothing to do with the ark. It was God's judgment. On one hand, on the priests who had failed to do what God had called them to do. And on the other hand, that judgment had dreadful consequences for the people of Israel, for whom this whole sacrificial system had been corrupted beyond belief. And that's why in 1 Samuel 4, 21, 22, basically the whole story of that chapter can say the glory of the Lord has departed or a better way to say that has gone into exile. The glory of the Lord is gone from Israel. Now we knew that's not truly the case, but that's what they thought. And the reason they thought that was because the ark's gone. So God's gone. You see how their, their faith was in an object, not in the God who created them. And so if God had rejected his priests who had been anointed to provide this mediation between Israel and their holy God, and if God had allowed for the Ark of the Covenant, the very sign and the symbol of his presence and his commitment to Israel to be taken by their enemies, the Philistines, after they killed 34,000 of them, then really in, in the Israeli mind, they lost everything that mattered. What's the use of living? Where do we go from here? Now, I mentioned two weeks ago that when we start chapter 5, we really kind of leave Samuel and Israel behind. They're not really mentioned in the coming chapters, not till the end of, of chapter 6, chapter 7. And so, because we're focusing now on Israel's enemies, on the Philistines, 
And so we're, we're taken to this victorious uh, camp of the Philistines who had just taken the Ark of God, the sign of God's blessing and presence for Israel, into their own possession after killing so many of them. And so look at the first five verses here. You see the double defeat of Dagon. Dagon, Dagon. You know, this God. In verse 1, it says, The Philistines captured the Ark of God, and they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. The effect is really to set the events that are about to be told to us alongside the happenings of Shiloh all the way back in chapter 4. We've heard about what's, what's happening among the Philistines as the news of the Ark is captured. Um, it brought death. It brought despair in Shiloh. And now here, in verses 1 and 2, you see the, the defeated ark. They brought it to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God, and look at what they did. They brought it into the house of Dagon. This is a pagan god. All right? This is a pagan god. And they set it up beside Dagon. He was probably one of the highest Philistine gods, as far as reverence goes. On their part. And so the Ark of God is taken from Ashdod. It's placed in the temple of one of the Philistine deities, Dagon. And uh, like I said, he's the god of corn (laughs) or the god of agriculture, however you want to look at it. And so you can imagine the picture that this is painting in the Philistines' mind. Look at us. Here's our god, Dagon. Here's their little Ark. What represents kind of their god. And and look at, you know, Dagon is, is... it's right there, you know, standing up over the ark of God. And that's, they set it right beside it, thinking, you know, this is, this is the sign of their victory. I mean, there could have been no other clearer expression of who had won this battle in their mind. Because everything resided in those two things, Dagon, that stone god, and this ark, this box that represented God. For the Philistines and for the Israelites. They just thought, wow, this is over. This is it. The Philistines are, are being triumphant. They, their God had won. You can see that their satisfaction in, in doing this. It says in verse 1, they brought it from Ebenezer. Then the Philistines took it. And they brought it into the house of Dagon. You know, it, it's kind of like, hey, look at what we're doing. Look at how we are doing this. They set it up. They took. The ark of the Hebrew God is really, in the original language, it's the passive object of each of these verbs. That they did it over this thing, showing their, their, their power over it. They thought they had completely crushed, completely crushed the power and control of the Israeli God. Simply by having this stupid little box. That's really what it was. And, you know, when you stop and you think about, you know, now what the box represented is something different, but it was a box. You know, it's like today in our modern day vernacular, you think of people that sometimes, you know, they'll come to a church. We had a guy one time when we were doing the construction of the church, remodeling, and we invited him over, a neighbor, to come and look, and he kind of walked over and looked at the door. Oh, come on in. Oh, I can't go in there. (laughs) What do you mean? It's, it's a building, you know. It's not like a, you know, but oh no, I can't, I can't go in there. The roof would probably fall if I went in there. They have an idea that somehow that this building is a holy place. 
It's a place where the people of God, a holy people, gather to worship. But we don't worship this building. You know, God could wipe us out tomorrow, burn this place to the ground, and we'd end up maybe meeting in homes or, or meeting in a field somewhere. It wouldn't matter. It may be a little uncomfortable. It wouldn't be as nice. But you know what? We would still meet. Why? Because our identity isn't in this building. Well, their identity was in their god Dagon, and Israel's identity was in this Ark of the Covenant. And they thought, I really believe the Philistines thought, hey, we're just going to add this to our line of gods. So we'll, we'll take this in here to Dagon's temple, and we'll put this god right next to Dagon. Of course, Dagon's farly superior to this silly Ark, but you know what? It still it may bring us favor. That's how they viewed it. You know, they didn't, they didn't view it as something bad. They said, hey, this is, you know, to the victor go the spoils. We're taking this baby, and we're going to be blessed as a result of having this in our possession. Well, look at what happens in verses 3 and 4. We see Dagon's demise. Dagon, it says in verse 3, And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, probably went to pay the respects to Dagon, poor Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. Since the Philistines captured the ark, it has been called simply the ark of God. That's what it's called. In verse 11 of chapter 4, chapter 4, verse 13, 17, 18, 19, 21, 22, it's called, simply called the ark of God. It says, though in the hands of the Philistines, the ark lost that special significance for the Israelites as the ark of the covenant of the Lord. And how could it be seen as representing God's commitment to Israel when it now signified Israel's what? Defeat <laughs> to their enemies. And he's, the, the ark is right in that pagan place next to Dagon. And so for the first time since his capture, the narrator here calls it the ark of the Lord, the ark of Yahweh, the name by which God made himself known to his people Israel. And it seems appropriate for the ark this morning to the narrator because the sight of Dagon, he fell off his little perch, face down before the ark. His face is in the dirt. What'd they do? Did they scratch their head and say, hmm, this is interesting. I wonder what happened here. No. It says he fell down, downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So what'd they do? They took Dagon and put him back in his place. Pretty simple. They just put him right back where he's supposed to be. They didn't even really question anything, which seems kind of irrational. But that's what the worshiping of pagan gods and idols will do to you. They make you irrational. I mean, I took a drive one time with somebody. He had a little statue on his dashboard. We were eating something in the car, and he accidentally hit it and knocked it over. I thought he was going to come unglued. I didn't do it. He did it. Oh, man, I can't believe it. You know, oh, man. I'm like, what is that? Well, it represents saints, blah, blah, blah. You know, I can't believe that, man. That's not, that's not going to bring me good luck. I mean, all these irrational things started coming out of his mouth. And I'm sitting there going, it's a little plastic statue. You know, I mean, and your, your faith is, is in that? I mean, come on. But that's what 
happens when you end up being blindsided and being blinded into worshiping idols and crazy things like that. One, one thing that you, you, you have to realize, too, is that this isn't just back then. We have this today in churches. And not just a church like the Catholic Church, but you have it in churches, Protestant churches as well. People have this kind of mindset, you know. Um, I've even talked to Christians who have missed church because maybe they're sick. And somehow they feel that God's hand is heavy upon them because, man, they didn't didn't come to church. Well, I think God understands if you're sick. You know, you probably shouldn't come to church. You're going to get everybody else sick. You know, then everybody will be miserable. So, you know, but there's, there's certain things that we hold on to, okay, when we encounter things like this. And this is exactly what was happening here. They just put this little statue back in its place. They didn't question anything. Now, if you look at this, if you look at the text here, whether the the writer is making this point, whether it's Samuel, whoever wrote this, you have to imagine that he's kind of grinning ear to ear at this point. Like, oh, the little statue fell down. Oh, you know, look at what's happening. That this God of the Philistines, oh, he couldn't put himself back, could he? It says they put him back. They had to take Dagon and put him back in his place. By human hands. Uh, Put him back on the pedestal again. Now, if you think that this opened the eyes of the Philistines, you're sorely mistaken. They just put him right back where they said he needed to be. And, you know, uh, they kind of went on with their day. Dagon moved from his place. But you know what? He could not get back there again. In Isaiah chapter 46, verse 7, you wonder if he had this in mind when he wrote this verse. And I'll just read it for you. You don't even have to turn there. He's talking about the idols in Babylon. But this is what the verse says, Isaiah 46, 7. It says, they lift it to their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in its place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. That's the power of a pagan god. That's the power of an idol. They had to lift this poor fellow back to his feet. They had to put him back in his place. Wow, what a great God, Dagon. Well, the next night, there was even more action in Dagon's temple, it seems. It says here, But when they arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. But this time... It says the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. So the next day, they even get a a worse report. He didn't fall face down. His head fell off and his hands got busted off. So basically, all that's left is the trunk of Dagon. The Ashdod Times, one commentator says, probably said, Dagon topped and tailed in the temple before the Jewish ark. (laughs) That's what it said in the newspaper the next day. See, this is a humiliation of all humiliations. And this humiliation lasted for a long time. Look at what it says in verse 5. It says, And this is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. They remembered this. That's how humiliating it was. Years, decades, perhaps even centuries later, there's still this degree of shock. And horror about what happened to this pagan god, Dagon. 
it's kind of like I said, like it's, it's kind of like getting beat on your home turf. You know, and this is before the, the days of super glue, so they couldn't just glue them back together. All right, they couldn't even put them back together. Dagon was basically forever broken. And notice how the, the writer reminds us once again that it's the ark of the Lord. Okay, it's the ark of the Lord. Just, just, he wants us to be clear. Okay, you have this Dagon, this pagan god, but you have the ark of the Lord. Big difference. He's left face down, his head's cut off, and his hands are cut off. The last, the last part of verse 4 is curious in the Hebrew. It literally says this, only Dagon remained on him. <laughs> in other words, he had no head, he had no arms, just Dagon. It's a delightful way of saying what Dagon was. He couldn't think, he couldn't speak, he couldn't act. So chop off his head, chop off his hands, but what do you have? You still have Dagon. He's not worth anything. Can you see the mighty Dagon of the Philistines now? Headless, handless, only Dagon remaining on him. So what do they do? Verse 5, they, they basically, in Ashdod to this day there, it says this is why they don't tread on the threshold of Dagon. Everyone who goes into their temple remembers this night. And they remembered it, it's, it's, it's not, you're not allowed to touch the doorstep where Dagon's head and arms were ripped off. <laughs> it's interesting when you think back when the Ark of the Covenant was taken in 1 Samuel 4.21. It says, where is the glory? The glory has departed from Israel. Well, in their mind, this is what happened to their God. Someone else was getting the glory. Now, as you read on here, it's kind of uh, interesting because they still worship it. <laughs> and that's what happens with, with pagans and idols. I mean, even though we know they're powerless, they don't have any significance other than just what they are, a lump of clay, a piece of stone, whatever it might be, people still somehow pick them up and put them back in their place again. Well, verse 6 tells us what happens. The events in the temple of Dagon were just the beginning, really, of, of Philistines, the, the Philistines' troubles here. The second phase of their difficulties introduced, it says in verse 6, the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. In other words, God wasn't stopping with just destroying their little pagan idol. It says the, Lord, the hand of the Lord was heavy upon them. As Dagon lay in the dirt, headless and handless, the one whose name belonged to the ark was not handless. His hand was heavy upon them. Dagon could do absolutely nothing. He never could. No idol can. But now in his powerlessness, he is on full display. And who ends up being the powerful one? The Lord, Yahweh, in the temple of Dagon. So it says here, the Lord was heavy, his hand was heavy upon him. The word cannot be really translated the way they want you to understand this in the English, but as we noted earlier, that in, in the Hebrew, one word means glory and heavy, uh, kabod. And, and that's really what it's, what it's talking about here. The mother said in Shiloh, where is the glory? Where is, where is it's departed? And now we learn that Ashdod, the hand of the Lord, was 
heavy or, or glory glorified here in Ashdod. Well, how was it? Look at verse 6. It says, The hand of the Lord was, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both in Ashdod and its territory. I don't know how else to say this other than just say it. Uh, one commentary says this about this tumors. The translation of the word rendered tumor, basically, a lot of scholars in Hebrew, that word can also mean hemorrhoid. Now, we can kind of laugh at that, but that's literally what it means. Uh, as a matter of fact, in the Latin Vulgate, this verse is translated this way. He smote them in the more secret parts of their posteriors. So they had a little problem sitting down for a while. Whatever it was, it was sufficient enough to greatly freak them out, to frighten them. What's interesting is the men of Ashdod made the connection between the tumors, the pain, the physical pain that they were in, the smashing of Dagon, and the presence of the ark of the God of Israel in their midst. Look at what it says in verse 7. It says, And when the men of Ashdod say how things were, saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us. For his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. So they weren't entirely stupid, these men of Ashdod. They, they put it together. They realized, okay, this was great. We thought this was going to help us, this ark. But we just had problems ever since we got this thing. Let's get rid of it. Uh, let's get rid of it. And they were precisely right to connect, connect all those dots. They were in a very similar situation to the Israelites at the beginning of this saga, really, uh, God's people had drawn the correct conclusion that their defeat before the Philistines was the Lord's doing in chapter 4, verse 3. They didn't blame themselves. They blamed God. They said, God, you allowed this to happen. And just as the Israelite elders had put their heads together to consider what to do, now the lords of the Philistines, their leaders, the five kings, of the five Philistine cities were assembled together and they had a little meeting, crisis meeting. In verse 8, it says there, So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? The elders knew that there was a problem. The lords of of the Philistines were sure that it was the presence of the ark in Ashdod that caused their difficulties. And you might speculate as to what the wisest course of action would be at this point. But they did what they did. Uh, We don't know if there was a big debate. We don't know what happened, but they had some kind of a conversation. And in verse 8, it tells us, they answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. (laughs) So they all voted, and the poor guy at Gath lost, I guess. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was what? Verse 9, against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that once again, tumors broke out on them. Uh, The hand of the Lord was in the city. It was present. The consequence was a great panic. Um, That word panic is extraordinary because the reaction was extraordinary, really. The word typically describes the terror that God brought on the enemies of Israel in war. That's how it's usually thought of, leading to their destruction. Sometimes it's translated confused. Sometimes it's translated tumult. 
Um, but the people understood themselves what it meant to be under attack from the Lord. And it's worth remembering that these Philistines who called on one another, remember back in, in chapter 4, verse 9, I read that? Hey, you should be men and fight. What are they doing now? Hey, let's get rid of this thing. Let's give it to Gath. Let them deal with it. Okay? Well, what happened? You know, the same thing happened there. And it says in verse, verse 9, the same thing. And then, so what they do? They had another meeting. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. They probably didn't even have a meeting. They said, hey, give it to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of the God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out. They have brought this thing, this ark, to us, the ark of God of Israel, to kill us and our people. See, they, they, had, they had the association. They understood what was going to happen to them. And they said, no, 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 that's not gonna, we're not going to do that here. Sorry. And they protested vehemently before anything could happen to them. I mean, when you stop and think about whatever happened, hey, be men and fight, you know, yeah, take this on. No, no, man, they're running away with their tail between their legs because they see the power of God. And now it it just says there's this terrified panic going on throughout the whole land. They decided to move it to Gath. That's 12 miles to the east, if you're wondering. And then the same thing happened in Gath. They decided to move it again to Ekron, which is about five miles to the north. And see, Ashdod was kind of in the middle of their whole territory. So they're thinking, hey, we'll, we'll start in the middle, and that's, you know, this is our victory, this is our spoil, God, this God will bless our whole land. Well, we don't want this thing, let's move it over here. And, oh, no, we don't want it, let's move it over there. And they finally said, the ark is not coming here. The hand of God was heavy upon them, in verse 11. So God comes in judgment. God comes and displays his power, his sovereignty, and his nature, all without, guess who? Israel. <laughs> They're not even mentioned. It's just God. It's just God. He does this all by himself. Now, look at verse 12. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city, look, went up to what? Heaven. See, God comes, he displays his sovereign power, and guess who gets the glory? God. God gets it. Even in the end, even through their suffering. You see here, they basically surrendered. I mean, that's when they said, hey, you know, no, we don't want the ark. You know, this is their spoil from their war. I mean, why wouldn't you want it? It's like a trophy. No, 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 keep it away from here. They're, They're giving up. They're saying, hey, I've had enough of this. It was a complete surrender. They just put Dagon back in his place. They thought it was time to return the ark of Israel to its own place. And they had this terror going on, deathly panic throughout the whole city. Literally, it reads a panic of death. You know, when you say you're scared to death, you can literally be scared to death. And then you see the heavy hand of God was there. This was really, it brought the Philistines to a point that was similar to what Israel was doing when they were held captive in Egypt. It brought brought them to the end of themselves almost. The Philistines who had defied God, stop and think of this, they defied God, they feared that they would become slaves of the Hebrews. In the end, what happens? They're crying out to heaven, just like the Hebrews did when they were slaves in Egypt. There's a pattern there. This is how defiance is before God. 
This is how it plays its way out. People think that for a time you're getting away with it. Uh, It looks as though defying God is feasible. (laughs) Somehow, okay, it's it's all going to work out, but it never works out that way. It never works out that way. So when you look at this passage, what is it saying to us? I mean, it's kind of an odd story in, in a weird way. What does it have to do with us? It has something to say to us about, first of all, who God is. Secondly, it has something to say to us about the power of God. And it also has something to say to us about the truthfulness of God. The God who is, the God who is there, that he is not silent, and the only God there is. All right? You can sum it up as this is really the story of the whole Bible. It really is. This is what the Bible is about. It's about this story. Think about it. All the way back from the Garden of Eden onward, it's about this story. It's about warfare. It's about hostility. It's about the forces of darkness against what? The forces of light. It's a battle. It's about God and the idols of this world. I mean, that's what happened in the Garden of Eden, and isn't it? When Adam and Eve thought they knew better than God... They bowed down, and what they do? They basically worshiped Satan. They worshiped his suggestion. They believed a lie. And doing so, dethroned the true God and set up for themselves a false God, an idol. And from the Garden of Eden onward, even to today, this goes on in the hearts and lives of people. And this is the story of, of the Philistine arrogance as well as the Israeli stupidity. The Philistines thought that they had controlled God when they won. They got the ark. Now we're, we're in control of their God. That's what they thought. They had beaten him in battle, and now he was theirs to do their bidding. The one true God, Jehovah, Yahweh, the covenant Lord of the Old Testament, the only God there is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They thought that they beat him. They thought that they won. Uh, Calvin, in his Institutes, he says this, man's mind is a perpetual factory of idols. (laughs) It's so true. It's so true. I mean, just because we have iPhones and Twitter and Facebook and all this stuff, don't think that what went on in Dagon's temple doesn't go on today. It does. We're still facing the temptation of giving in to idols. The question is, basically the age-old question, whom will you serve, right? Uh, Whom will you serve? That's what he said to Ahab. That's what he said to Elijah back in that time. Choose what? This day, whom you will serve. Are you going to serve Baal? Are you going to serve the one true God of Israel? This is like, it's Dagon and the God of Israel. It's the clash of the titans. This is the, 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 the war of all wars. And Dagon ends up on the floor with his head and hands cut off. Uh, You say, well, okay, well, how does this apply to us today? There is a gospel here. There is a good news here. I mean, this this is Old Testament, but you you can dig out the gospel here because God is triumphant. That's good news, right? When God is triumphant, that's good news. God is victorious. Today we would say that what? Christ is risen from the dead. The grave could not hold him. 
death could not hold him. He's victorious over that. He lives by the power of an endless life. It's the Dagons of this world, the gods of this world, the philosophies of this world, the idols of men's heart, the God of Israel. You've got to make a choice. Which one is it going to be? The God who raised from the dead his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and proclaimed the tomb was empty? He's not here. He's risen. See, that's what the whole message of the Bible is about, is God's victory over sin and death. Death. Who rules? Who reigns? Who sits upon his throne? No one but God. Who's in control of your life? Who's in control of my life? Who has the ultimate say? Who has the ultimate power? These are questions you need to ask yourselves. Who has the ultimate authority? Who is king? Who is Lord? See, whatever occupies your heart other than Jesus is a God, small g, and it's an idol. It's that simple. It's a Dagon. Remember the song, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold? I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords. I mean, that little chorus, I mean, should echo in our hearts every single day because the world is trying to sell us stuff. The world is trying to draw us in. The world is trying to say, hey, you know what? Just do your church thing on Sunday and, you know, it's it's okay. You'll be okay. And there's people out there like Richard Dawkins who are not only opposed to religion, but they're intolerant of it. They don't want religion around. He's a self-proclaimed atheist, evolutionist guy. Uh, They want it wiped off the face of the map. They don't want you to teach your children Bible stories or pray with them or teach them doctrines of the Word of God because you're indoctrinating them in religion. And in their mind, that's wrong. I mean, what a glorious story that, you know what? (laughs) Dagon is toppled. His head is lopped off. His hands are gone. He has no power whatsoever over us as believers. The story is about triumph. The story is really about the one who rules, about the sovereignty of God, the power of God, the triumph of God, of truth over the powers of darkness. You say, what's it about? You remember this hymn? And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us Sideth, let goods and kindreds go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom, what? Is forever. His kingdom is forever. And guess what? We're part of that kingdom as the body of Christ. The rule of God, the reign of God, the sovereignty of God is forever. No matter how many Dagons there may be, no matter how many errant philosophies or religions or false religions out there, God has not lost any of his power. He's still sovereign. It's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. That's what Paul indicated to the the Thessalonians who had been idol worshipers. They had worshipped idols 
of all kinds of different things. And when Paul sat down to write that letter to the Thessalonian church, one of the earliest of all the letters that he wrote, by the way, his heart was filled with a sense of joy and of gladness and faith in God because he says about them that they had been delivered from idols to serve the living and true God. I pray that you can say that tonight, that you've been delivered from the idols of this world to serve the living and true God. And when this God, this Dagon creature, bit of stone, whatever it might be, when Dagon fell in the presence of the Ark of the Covenant, I mean, surely anybody with any kind of brain would be able to say the Ark of the Covenant is more powerful God than Dagon. Dagon has failed us. You would think that's what you would conclude. But what did they do? Sadly, they put him right back up. They tried to prop him back up. They put him right back in his place again. And they were angry at what the Ark of the Covenant did to humiliate their false god. But they didn't give up on Dagon, did they? No. Decades later, they're still worshiping Dagon. I mean, it's kind of like in the New Testament, if you remember when Jesus, when he raised Lazarus from the dead. Remember when he did that? He'd been dead for how long? Three days. And King James says, in a a beautiful way, it says, behold, he stinketh. (laughs) Uh, He's dead. He's decomposing. And Jesus says what? Don't worry. Lazarus, come forth. And then there's this beautiful, extraordinary scene of Lazarus and his sisters and Jesus in the house of Bethany. And they're eating. They're having lunch together. I mean, you'd wonder what they talked about at the lunch table. It'd be kind of interesting to have an ear to that. But you know, when you read through the Gospel of John, what are the Pharisees doing? What are the Pharisees doing while they're eating lunch with Lazarus? Yeah, they're plotting to kill Lazarus. They're plotting to kill him. Jesus had just raised him from the dead, but they're so ticked off, they're so bound to their idolatry that now they're plotting to kill the one that Jesus raised from the dead. These gods, these idols, if you're not a a Christian here tonight, if you're not a believer, you, you, you need to come before a holy God. You need to bow your knee to the Lord Jesus Christ and confess him as your Lord and Savior, as your prophet, as your priest, as your king. Turn from your sin. Turn to the Savior. That's what he desires from you. But it warns us also not to judge too quickly Uh, the providences of defeat. I don't know what they were thinking in Israel when all this was going on, because we're not really told. They're probably mourning the 34,000 men that had just been slaughtered in a battle, right? They were probably grief-stricken at best. Perhaps they're thinking that the godliest among them had lost all hope because the, the, the ark is gone. It was taken away. And God was at their mercy. And they were not there to help God along. Maybe that's what they were thinking. What are they doing to that ark? We've got to protect the ark. <laughs> I often wonder, ask this question myself. What if Grace Bible Church wasn't here? Just if it didn't exist beginning tomorrow. Is that the end of the gospel? Of course not. Is that the end of Christianity? Of course not. Is that the end of God's sovereignty in the world? Of course not. 
See, nor was it the end of the sovereignty of God when the Ark of the Covenant was in the hands of the Philistines. You know, when you stop and think about it, there was no darker moment in the history of this earth than when Jesus hung upon that cross, bruised and battered, bleeding, soldiers sticking him with a spear to confirm that he was dead. I mean, all logic says his enemies triumph. The gods of this world triumph. Satan announced a party in the, in the halls and corridors of hell. But he had not reckoned with the power of God. He had not reckoned with the power of Jesus Christ. Because in the coolness of that tomb, that body came back to life. He came back to life. See, that's the battle sometimes that we face. The battle between the supernatural and the natural. Believing God for the supernatural. That's what God wants us to do every day as we live this life. We, we go out into this sin-stained world and we need to believe in the supernatural power of God to keep us pure, to keep us focused on the things of God, to keep our, our, our knee bent before a holy God and not to rise up in our own pride and say, no, I want this and I'm going to go after this. I don't care what you say, God. I don't care what your word says. We need to remember that Christ was victorious in that moment in history when the world thought that they had defied the power of god that they had gotten away with it that he rose from the dead colossians two fifteen says that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in it literally referring to the cross I mean, you know, if you stop and think about it, to defy God is as stupid as it sounds. And it's far more stupid than it often looks. You know, we don't want to mess around with the power of God. We want to acknowledge it for who he is and worship him for all that he is. Amen? Amen.